listening to Adjective New Music's podcast, Lexical Tones. I'm your host, Rob McClure. Interconnected, enthusiastic, strategic. Vanessa Reed brings a deep belief in New Music USA's national and international role as advocate, connector, and supporter to her current position as CEO and president of New Music USA. Her professional life began in the late 90s in the UK equivalent of the American Music Center. Following some time away from the UK shaping funding policy for the arts in Amsterdam and Brussels, Vanessa spent a decade in London as CEO of the PRS Foundation, the UK's leading funder of new music and talent development. Connecting all kinds of people and ideas, creating opportunity in response to need, enabling people of all backgrounds to succeed, and working with like-minded partners to grow impact and resources are some of the core principles she uses to guide her work. Welcome to Lexical Tones. Um, This is a special episode where uh, uh, Jamie Lee Sampson and I are sitting down with Vanessa Reed. So Vanessa, welcome to Lexical Tones. Thank you, it's great to be here. So you are the relatively new uh, CEO and president of New Music USA. Uh, you you came over from uh, the PRS Foundation in uh, in the UK. What uh, what made that transition to uh, leave that foundation and come over to New Music USA? What made that attractive? What made it easy? What made it difficult? <laughs> That's a Great question. Um, I think, I suppose, throughout my career, what I really want to do the most is to make a tangible difference. And I was still completely loving my role at PRS Foundation. Um, But I realised that, you know, I'd spent 10 years really transforming that organisation. And it was in such a strong place that I knew I could hand it over to the next person and it would continue to flourish. And so I started to think about how I could, you know, refresh my skills, refresh my knowledge and uh, see where I could help in another context. And because new music has always been something that I've been passionate about, it's been central to my life and to my education. um, When I saw that Ed Harsh was leaving New Music USA and I picked up on that news pretty late in the day, I was just kind of curious to know, you know, who they were looking for and if they'd appointed yet. So it was a fairly innocent inquiry at the beginning. And then when I started to think about the prospect of exploring what I could do in a different country, where of course there would be similarities, but lots of differences as well, then that's when I kind of got quite excited about applying for this position. That's fantastic. Um, You know, politics and size of the country and everything aside, what's one of the, the biggest differences you've seen so far in the difference between new music in England and new music in, in the United States? Well, I suppose the first most obvious thing is just the scale of the US is so different from the UK. So when you talk about being a national funder in the UK, I realise now that that's a pretty simple proposition compared to the United States. And and even in the UK, there was a lot of debate and conversation with national funders about how we could ensure that 
composers and music organisations and the art sector in general outside of London was getting the support it deserves. So when you suddenly um, come to the US and you realise, as I did when we ran our first survey here at New Music USA, that people are often looking at the way that national organisations are based in New York and there's a fear that everything is kind of New York-centric or only focused (laughs) on the two coasts, you know, LA, New York. You start to realise how important it is to really find out what's happening in uh, slightly smaller cities across the US and that's why I sort of began very quickly in my first few months um, getting on the road and and meeting representatives of the music community in Detroit, in Miami, in LA as well, uh, Washington DC and other places and I'm really looking forward to doing more of that um, this year as well. Yeah I think uh, I mean the two people you're on uh, in an interview with here, Rob and I are both in tiny, tiny towns. <laughs> Very tiny, yes. <laughs> um, and it, you know, they're both college towns, but yeah, for a lot of composers, that's stable income or at least one stream of stable income for us. And so uh, I, my small town is based in New York State, though, and looking at the grant requirements, I mean, we were just talking about this this morning, Rob and I were, that... Um, that you know, my tiny town might have a little bit more possibility to get funding because of the way that the funds are restricted to New York, New York State, New York City yeah. in some cases. But Rob's tiny town is in Ohio, and then sometimes that's really, um, it feels a little bit uh, isolated from major opportunities like these. Um, exactly. So- and yeah, I'm really, I'm really conscious of that. And I'm really hoping that next year one of you know the new program strands we can launch is looking at how we can support and facilitate more collaboration in smaller centres and actually find ways to get additional resource to to bring to the kind of artist led uh, groups and the the infrastructure that really stimulates innovation and then starts to influence the bigger institutions across the country. So watch this space on that but I'm really (laughs) conscious of it and um, I'm really excited to be you know meeting composers from different places and finding out you know what makes certain communities tick in in different states. So so in your initial research that you did um, in in you know sending out surveys and, and kind of meeting composers from all over the country what are what are some of the the challenges you feel like there are for composers and and ensembles or arts organizations? Uh, what are some of the challenges that they're facing today? In the discussions we had with groups and composers outside of New York, um, and actually we discovered this same challenge in New York in previous years when we ran a program called the New York Impact Fund, I think one of the struggles is how do you take time out of just surviving and, you know, making sure you've got the funding you need to kind of live if you're a composer or to keep the organisation running if you're if you're a group. And how do you find a way to kind of think more creatively about how you can connect with other people in your city or um, how do you find time to kind of step back from the sort of churn of activity that is what you need to do each year and really think and reflect on how we could all be more strategic together. So so this whole point about connectivity and some of the 
gaps between the larger institutions and the smaller groups in certain cities became really clear. And I hope there's something that we can do to kind of um, address some of those issues. In terms of, you know, what people feel they need funding for the most, our survey um, fed back that people are still really keen on funding for commissions, and that's particularly composers. Recording costs, I think, came in at number two. And then obviously for the for the groups and the organisations, it's those uh, operating costs that are always the hardest to fundraise for. So... I wasn't surprised by that, and particularly that point about operating costs, you know, that's the same in the UK, even though there is more public funding in the UK for arts organisations. Some other interesting bits and pieces that came through were, um, you know, the interest in being part of new networks and new frameworks that would give people the chance to, for example, undertake residencies with small to medium-sized groups rather than orchestras, which had been our focus in the past. Mm. And also, there seems to be a growing interest in cross-art form residencies. And I've had lots of one-to-one discussions with composers and ensemble leaders who, you know, just keep saying, what can we learn from the visual arts world? Because they're the ones that seem to have, you know, all of the attention, the patrons, the best marketing strategies, the most buzz around them. Is there something we can do to try and bring those, you know, visual arts and new music audiences together? And and then finally, just that theme on how can we reach greater audiences how can we share audiences and how can we make sure that we bring people from outside of our community in who can then be kind of ambassadors for our work? So, you know, wouldn't it be more powerful to hear from, you know, a well-known film director about how great the new music scene is in Detroit or wherever it might be? So I think there's certainly that tension about wanting to be part of a vibrant specialist new music community but also recognizing that we really want to break out from that and and make sure that we can you know find new possibilities and just grow the reach of this brilliant work that's happening that's fantastic yeah and i love that i mean the adjective new music collective that rob and i are both a part of and that lexical tones is is kind of hosted by in addition to Robin Clare, um, <laughs> um, you know, we, we kind of all started because because tireless self-promotion gets exhausting and it's a lot more fun sometimes to turn and say, uh, you know, I have a friend who's got this work that's amazing. Why don't you check them out at the same time that friend is co-promoting you? And and that's the same type of thing. I feel like you're talking about it at a broader level when we're looking across the arts and not just new music um, being kind of an insular community, but, but you know, in, in smaller cities, I think especially, Toledo, Ohio is a really good case. Rob grew up there. I lived there yeah. for a number of years. And when mm. I was there, I started partnering with a lot of the arts organizations to bring a broader new music scene. And uh, the programs director, Scott Boberg, at the Art Museum scared the living daylights out of me one day. He was like, so, you know, I, I would love to work with you guys on on a new music concert series. Uh, you know, talk to me about the new music scene in Toledo. And 
my co-owner, Andrew, and I just looked at him for a second with our mouths open. He was like, relax. I know it's the two of you. What do you want to do? Let's go. (laughs) 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 Uh, But, you know, it's grown because of that spark and because of the collaboration with the visual arts community. And I think we're talking about um, community building for new music. We, We... love to lean on and partner with the visual arts, but how to do it, it's, it's time consuming and it's, it's a, it's a big burden for some small organizations. So that's fantastic that that's part of the conversation. Um, Sure. And it's, I mean, the other interesting thing is, you know, we've been going through a big planning process, obviously. And one of the values that myself and the team here at New Music USA all care about is, is being open. So openness. And I think, The other area that we shouldn't forget is, you know, thinking about collaboration across sub-genres or different music genres. Yeah. And also learning from the different, if you want to call it business models, you know, the the different (laughs) ways of of developing and, and sustaining a career. And actually, I think the gap between emerging independent artists working in kind of contemporary adventurous pop music is not so far away from you know composers or composer performers or composer Mm -hmm. curators who quite often are kind of crossing over different worlds now and what we're really talking about is DIY culture and this is in a way what everyone has to grapple with is it how how do you create your best work whilst also you know, making sure you're earning enough money whilst also maybe doing a few other jobs at the same time. <laughs> you know, that's the other thing that came through our survey. Um, I think 70% of the respondents were a composer in some form or other, but mm-hmm. they were also about two or three other things at the same time. Oh, yeah. Um, so, you know, so DIY aesthetic is something that I think is is kind of part of the 21st century demands. And it's, you know, how do we grapple with that as a sector? Um, what are your what are your ideas for kind of the going forward? What are the things you're doing with New Music USA right now? And what what are what's kind of on the horizon? Well, we're very much in the kind of review development planning phase. So it's, it's really very early days still for us. But I think, you know, there are three very clear kind of strands of activity for me. There's the, and I would, to summarise, it's really support, connect and amplify. So, you know, through our project grants, we know that, you know, however many different ways we can help people, money is still going to be important. So we want to obviously sustain our project grants, make them as effective as possible and listen to all the feedback we're getting Um, with regards to the process and how we make that a bit easier when it comes to, you know, the high numbers of people who are going to be rejected because the demand is so great. So that's certainly one big piece of work we're looking at. And we've already introduced some new guidelines and restrictions for this round. The deadline is at the end of the month, but it's um, just making sure that we're, you know, encouraging people to focus only on one application to only apply for activity that won't have happened by the time we give them money. Mm -hmm. So I'm hoping that some of these things will help us clarify, you know, what we can realistically support and to give more people a chance. Um, We've also 
being very open and transparent and that's another value we care about with regards to the restrictions around some of those um, funding pots because they come from our endowment which is a wonderful thing for an organisation like us to have but I don't think we've been open enough in explaining that you know a large proportion of that endowment comes from funders who actually are based in New York and want to fund people here. Um, some of the endowment is targeted at new music and dance projects, for example. So, you know, one of the challenges for us as we move forward is thinking about how can we find other funding partners from different parts of the country who might want to ring fence their money for different states outside of New York. Um, and, and as I was saying, how we can be as clear as possible about that support. And then our connectivity strand is really about thinking how we can be very strategic again in partnership because like everyone else we have to raise funds for any new work we do um, so we want to see if we can collaborate with new partners um, in city hub settings or in particular areas um, where we think there's a need for intervention so our first new partnership was sphinx that we launched um uh, just before Christmas, you know, that's encouraging orchestras to work together and collaborate so that they are sharing uh, repertoire by composers of colour, programming existing pieces and also working together to co-commission. So our role there is really around convening, supporting, facilitating, providing expertise and information and then amplifying the results when they happen. Um, and then finally, obviously, the, the other really important strand that I've been calling, you know, sort of amplification, or you could also call it advocacy, is the work we do through New Music Box, which is in its 20th year this year. Um, and there's a wealth of wonderful articles there, um, not just coming out now, but also from the past. So again, I think, you know, in a way, mirroring our recognition that there's a lot of repertoire out there that deserves to be repeated. I think there's a lot of content we have that is still relevant today that, that could be repackaged and represented in a different way. And within New Music Box is also quite an interesting um, compendium of, of articles and what I would call kind of toolkits, which are highlighting different um, areas that you know that composers are often going to uh, try to explore whether it's there was recently there's I saw there was an article about you know how you work with a librettist or there's our famous guide to commission fees mm -hmm. which lots of people still refer to um, and there are lots you know there was an article about um, casting uh, trans people in opera so there's all sorts of useful guides and and kind of educational resources that I think we could be presenting and promoting in an even more effective way. So we want to do that. And of course, we've also got um, Counterstream Radio, which is, is still there as a sort of 24-7 resource for people to tune into. So all of that we're going to be looking at and, and, and working out how we can reach even more people with that very valuable content and information. Awesome. That sounds fantastic. You mentioned that... Uh that the survey results that you were referring to were from your first survey. So do you plan on doing multiple uh, surveys moving forward to get uh, to kind of tune in every time there's some changes and maybe tweak as you go, course correct? I think I think we will. I mean, 
This first survey was really just about our whole organisation and general needs. Mm-hmm. Um, having said that, you know, I think we still could have reached a broader range of people with the survey. I mean, one of the things that I've been incredibly proud of since I joined New Music USA is discovering, you know, the extraordinary breadth of the grantees that were supported through our project Mm. grants programme over the past eight years, actually. So last year, um, around 60% of the projects funded significantly featured female artists or practitioners and around 40% significantly featured people of colour and it's been fairly consistently high across the years. Amazing. For me that's that's an amazing kind of unsung success story that we haven't really talked about (laughs) and yet our survey um, did very well in the end on gender balance but we didn't reach as many people from different ethnicities or you know potentially there were other um, aspects of um, you know people's profile that that were that not you know consistently represented. So I'm always personally interested, obviously, in the you know how many people are replying who come from outside of New York and LA. How many people are replying who didn't necessarily have the traditional kind of conservatoire you know, education route into new music might come from a different socioeconomic background. I think all of these differences are really um, important. So I think we will be reaching out as we develop new initiatives and um, and want to interrogate different questions around different themes. And hopefully we can also do that in an open way through social media and just, you know, sometimes being even more spontaneous than just having a, a survey. Maybe we can start just, you know, running some open questions here and there on Twitter or uh, on Instagram about how people feel about whatever it is that's happening right now. And I think some of the New Music Box articles have been doing that. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. Uh, I want to circle back around to something you said when you were kind of detailing the, you know, what is going on right now and what's going on in the future. And you mentioned that, you know, transparency and openness was a big part of, uh, you know, what you want to see for the organization going forward. And, you know, I think a lot of people are going to really appreciate that because, you know, when we were talking about the the geographic disp- uh, the geographic distribution of you know the grants, um, I had no idea that you know so much of your so much of your funding was kind of earmarked toward New York City. And in years past, you know, I think my I can speak for myself, but I I think I probably represent a um, you know a a decent amount of composers out there who would look at, you know, okay, well, what, what was awarded last year? You know, let's, let's look at that. And then what was awarded the year previous to that? And I think just seeing New York, New York, New York, New York, that probably, um, you know, dissuaded plenty of composers from even applying because, well, I don't live in New York, so I'm not going to, clearly I'm not going to get it. But, but I think in years past, I probably interpreted that as, oh, well, they just have a bent toward New York. And and that kind of feeds into this narrative that, you know, the only thing in new music is happening in New York. But now, no, having that transparency and seeing that, you know, 
that so much of those funds are are specific to New York based on your uh, your benefactors. I mean that that kind of lifts this cloud off of off of those those project grants. So I personally, and I think a lot of people are really will really appreciate having that information and having that understanding. Yeah, I mean, please, you know, if you're listening to this podcast, do take a look at the guidelines because it gives you the exact percentages and it's kind of broken down per area of activity. So commissions, recordings and new music and dance. So it varies a bit across the programmes. But certainly, you know, there are there are restrictions there which have influenced us. And I think, you know, as with every funding body, and this has been true to previous roles I've played, both at PRS Foundation in London, but also the European Cultural Foundation in Amsterdam, which was also massively oversubscribed. Um, you know, we all tend to go through periods of review and reflection and we try to make things better for applicants and and that happened here at New Music USA with all the best intentions and the idea was to try and bring all of these different strands of activity that we used to have into one pot which is our project grants to make it easier for you all and obviously what we're learning now is that that has some repercussions that hadn't been anticipated and and so we're actually looking again at as you say, making things more transparent and even defining perhaps next year, you know, the new music and dance fund as a standalone initiative because it is very specific. And I also personally think it's a great thing to shout about in terms of getting people to think about whether they're collaborating in that way with choreographers and if there's anything they want to try and explore and test by applying to us. So um, again, watch this space as we develop that side of our work. But I guess we're also really keen to underline that we're not simply a grant making organisation. And I guess that's where we're, you know, we're a bit different from PRS Foundation, which does have a very broad range of funding initiatives. Um, What we do here at New Music USA is also hold a lot of knowledge and information about the whole sector Um, and as I said I think you know New Music Box is a great starting point for that Um, but I'd love us to be you know the gateway to the most exciting things that are happening in New Music right now and in the past for anyone who is trying to kind of explore our world so you know coming from the UK the obvious example would be okay you've got an international programmer coming over to the US they want to know which composers are really um, doing exciting things at the moment but they already know about the published ones because they've already been promoted in their country but Mm -hmm. what about the people at the next level down how would they find out about them or you know alternatively you could have um you know, someone wanting to know who some of the key players were in a certain city and, you know, can they find that out by us running a series of kind of profile features about the new music scene in different cities around the US. That's something I'd love to do because I'd love to <laughs> read all of that myself. You know? So, um, so I th- you know, I think there's lots of exciting things we can do. And, you know, for all organisations, it's... So important, you know, particularly if you're dealing with contemporary art in whichever form, to really be, you know, ahead of the curve and anticipating the next developments. And 
when New Music Box was launched 20 years ago, it was one of the very first web zines of its kind. So it was really ahead of the game. And now what we recognise is that it's time for us to be looking at making podcasts and thinking about different formats and different ways to reach different generations and, and, and different communities and also to kind of mix things up a bit. And as I was saying earlier, bring in some different voices who, you know, will hopefully um, start opening doors and providing different routes in for different people who could be enjoying the music that's being made right now. So uh, a big question and, and a big part of, of the work that many organizations are doing right now, and you've kind of hat, tipped your hat at this um, already, but um, as far as, as the diversity within your own organization or inclusivity um, and equity, there is still a huge gap at the administrative level for a lot of organizations that are doing work in diversity, equity, and inclusion. And um, this might be in the works for you, and it might be in early conversations, but um, as far as as administration of all of these different things, have has there been a conversation yet at New Music USA about how to be more inclusive and, and to have better equity at the top um, and how Absolutely. to encourage other organizations to do so as well, because it's not one organization. It is an industry that is still heavily dominated by a very narrow demographic. Absolutely. Um, it's, you know, amongst the very first conversations we started to have, but, you know, at board level and with staff, um, you know, a lot of people here are very passionate about, thinking around how we can uh, you know obviously in the first instance it's been how can we reach out and feature and support as broad a range of artists and organizations as possible and so actually in many ways new music usa has been exemplary with that because they've just been doing it for about as i said eight years without really talking about it and without giving it particular labels Mm -hmm. um that that unfortunately has its downside because it means that people from the outside won't necessarily see that, mm. particularly, as you're pointing out, if the organisation is a white-led organisation with the usual profile that boards and and leadership teams in particular tend to have. So we're all in total agreement that in our next strategic plan, you know, a priority is for our organisation development strategy to catch up with the work we're doing on the ground. Of course, yeah. And we, we've, we've already, um, you know, been working as a team in sort of changing the way we approach staff recruitment, for example. So we've recently uh, appointed a, a woman of colour to our grants team. And we did that because she was the best candidate and because we had a sort of blind um, screening process for the applications. We had a um, diverse panel of interviewers. And, and, and my team here is pretty um, diverse, actually. So um, that side of things is definitely moving forward. I think it's always more challenging when you start looking at how do we develop the board and how do we make sure that... Um, our board reflects the city we live in yeah. and 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 also the equity, diversity and inclusion that, that we feel should be central to everything we do. Um, but we have already begun on that journey and 
I have to say that with, you know, with governance and board recruitment, it is again about just simply getting on with it and doing it (laughs) and reaching out to as many people as you can to open up your networks because that's what it ultimately comes down to. I mean, anyone who's done an unconscious bias test will know that one of the first questions is they ask you to think of, I don't know, five people who, who are in your closest circle of friends who you would call if you wanted to um, get some advice on something. And usually those people are all exactly like you. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of very relieved that in my previous role at PRS Foundation... I actually had a couple of board members who I put in that list of five because they'd become kind of mentor figures for me and they were both, you know, not white and not from the same background as me and I deliberately recruited them to the board for that reason. So so I think you can be very conscious and strategic about this but you have to... Um, count on other people to help you broaden your network and and you have to just you know make as many new connections as you possibly can and be clear what what you're clear about what you're looking for so um yeah I agree that it's a sector-wide challenge but the arguments um going to the end of your question I mean how do we how do we convince the whole sector that this is essential and, (laughs) and what are the benefits and why does this matter you know I mean The two things um, that avoid the obvious kind of moral and social case is that it's just going to be great for your organisation. And and the story that I really enjoy telling is that I once hosted a panel discussion in London um, and we had the male controller of BBC Radio 3, the classical station, that runs the proms on my panel. Mm -hmm. And they had joined a campaign that I set up in my previous role, which is called Key Change, which was encouraging lots of organisations to sign up to a 50-50 gender balance by 2022, um, particularly with their programming. So I asked Alan Davey, the controller of Radio 3, why the proms would sign up to something like this. And he said, well, because we know it will simply improve the quality of the programme you know full stop simply and, i love the word and, simply and, and, you, just... and, and you can kind of yeah exactly but it's but it's true like the logic is if you recruit from a broader talent pool whatever it is you're doing you are going to end up with more choice and a better result at the end and and i think you know the second statement to add to that is that it increases the relevance of those concerts to you know to more people Um, And then if you go into the business sector to kind of leap out of the music world for a bit, we know that it's proven in all of these reports that if you have diverse boards of directors, your company is usually more successful Mm -hmm. because it's more progressive. And it's recognising that when you're recruiting, it's not about considering the individual skills in isolation it's about thinking what could they contribute to the overall board or the overall team and will that team or board be stronger as a result and if you've got anyone who's going to help question and bring in different perspectives then the answer is yes so um, I think the arguments for are so clear that people who don't follow that direction are going to get left behind yeah yeah well 
I think I think in the past month, two different women have told me that men have told them to their faces in professional settings that that uh, it's getting too competitive now. And my answer in both cases was good. <laughs> like, like exactly, healthy it competition. The <laughs> yeah, and and you know, in in our key change program, that involved a lot of. Um, pop and rock festivals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it did. And, you know, I really can't imagine that every white male indie guitar band is actually the best thing you can have on that stage. There are some great bands, but they're not all great. <laughs> yep. I mean, I think the same arguments that used to be made uh, that, I mean, this is an old anecdote that I'm not going to give to anybody in particular, but, you know, you don't want to hire a woman who's only won women competitions because she can't compete in the broader, in the broader community. I'm like, can't the same be said for all the dudes too? (laughs) That was, that was about 15 years ago that that was said to me. So that, I mean, that was not even uh, looking at underrepresented heritages. That was a statement about gender breakdown and it was a binary gender breakdown as well. So um, you're right. Absolutely right. That this, all the statistics point to greater diversity and greater equity and inclusion mean that uh, we're considering more points of view on a board. We're seeing um, elements from different upbringings and different backgrounds and different um, income levels. All of those things contribute to having a greater knowledge of what's going on in our community and how to help everyone, not just those who have done this this way before. Yeah. Oh. And I think, you know, the important the important kind of headline is that equity benefits everyone you know it's not it's not just benefiting the people who are currently underrepresented it's benefiting everyone because it creates a stronger society and you know as we were saying it creates a a stronger infrastructure a, a, a stronger set of observations about the world when it comes to the arts you know and there was one instance when I was on a panel in New York um with representatives of the Annenberg Institute who've done a lot of research into women in film and the incredible gender gap there mm-hmm. amongst um, film directors, for example. And a, a guy put his hand up in the audience and um, said, yeah, this is all great. I, yeah, I get it. But like, what's in it for me? Mm. That was his question. <laughs> and... You know, you have to just say, this is going to help everyone. It's not just helping the people you think you're sacrificing your space for. <laughs> oh, it's, The, the yeah. sentence, a guy puts his hands up and his hand up in the audience, pretty much never ends well. I know, I know. I mean, I think I just thought of three different conferences where that's happened this year. <laughs> you know, great, amazing panel discussion. And then a guy puts his hand up. I'm just like... Ooh, yeah, we all. I think I think everyone has those <laughs> at least one of those stories from the past twelve to eighteen months. <laughs> I think you're right. Yeah. I mean, the good at news is one. the good news is that's become a line because these conversations are happening. And while mm-hmm. nothing is happening fast enough, I think a lot of us feel that nothing is happening fast enough, it means that progress is being made on small fronts, even if it's slightly glacial, on the 
community for the community as a whole, but some organizations are able to move faster. So I'm going to be fascinated uh, in watching what you guys do and hopefully how you amplify that to go back to one of your own words to help uh, other organizations find a good path forward as well. Um, Because, I mean, imagine if orchestras programmed at the same rate your grants are awarded. Mm. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) The face of contemporary classical music would change entirely, quickly. Mm, It's not now, but it it could. Well, well it is. I mean, it certainly is the future that we're thinking about here. You know, I guess that's... The other thing I've always been very excited by in in all of the roles I've had in new music is that, you know, I think every art form deserves a a specialist agency that's going to try and keep helping it to move forward. And, you know, there are so many brilliant, inventive, imaginative people here in the States who I've met already and many I haven't met. And it's how do you kind of harness that energy and and make sure that people don't um, shy away from taking risks and don't just go down the safe route because of the financial challenges, but actually be audacious and bold and create something that people just want to come to because it's so great, Mm. you know. That's fantastic. I think I'm out of questions on my side, Rob. What about you? Did you, um, Vanessa, did you, I I remember speaking with Jamie and there were maybe a couple things that were like kind of coming up really, really soon. Did we, did we cover those things? Yeah. So the Sphinx program is our latest initiative. And then, I mean, the project grants deadline is coming up at the end of this month. Okay. So those are the two kind of new things. Great. Well, uh, maybe we should end kind of the way we always end in in kind of asking the guests, how did you get into music? You know, what what is what is uh-huh. your background that kind of led you down the path to music? Sure. Well, I was lucky enough to grow up at a time when instrument lessons were were free in the UK. Um, my mum played piano and organ, so I kind of grew up with music being played around me as a child and I started learning piano and then clarinet at a relatively early age so I you know I came into it from the angle of participating and performing and creating and then I you know really focused on music in my studies and it was I guess what was very refreshing and I would love to make sure that every careers advisor says this in their you know, in in their workshop statements right at the beginning that, you know, I just think you're going to be best at what you enjoy the most. And fortunately, my parents always just said, choose the subjects you enjoy the most. You know, when you're deciding in the UK what you study at A-level or what you do at university, so many people start trying to, you know, decide that it's strategic to do this science or whatever. And I studied music and French because I loved it. There wasn't any particular (laughs) logic. But, you know, in a way that has become very emblematic of what I've done because I've worked in music and I've lived in different countries as I've done that. I've always loved exploring different cultures as part of of this kind of vocation I have. And I think also it's it's about understanding within whatever your passion, um, understanding... 
what kind of role you would be best at. So when I got to the point where people were encouraging me to go to conservatoire as a clarinet performer because I'd done my diploma and all of that, I just suddenly realised that was probably going to be too isolating for me to be rehearsing and practising on my own in a, in a you know, uh, trying to be a soloist or whatever. Mm-hmm. So... Um, I decided quite early on that I wanted to play a supportive role and for some reason I got really interested in a very geeky way in contemporary music. (laughs) So I used to kind of go on the road to these like weird seminars that mainly involved sort of older men in anoraks and and dark glasses. Um, and, And I just was fascinated by this kind of undersung, um, slightly under the radar um, creative space that composers occupied. So my first job ended up being at the British equivalent of the American Music Center, uh, American Music Center, and I guess that's where I I knew that somehow working with artists, but ideally composers and musicians, was going to be part of, you know, my whole career. That's great. Yeah. It is. <laughs> so uh, before we go, uh, let's make sure everyone knows um all the all the different social media outlets that they should be looking at for not only you but also uh new music usa sure well so i'm i'm mainly on twitter um i am vanessa reed i'm trying to get more into instagram but i'm (laughs) sort of uh, my biggest presence is on twitter and then of course we've got new music usa is on twitter and instagram uh, and Facebook and you know we've got various newsletters you can follow so the new music box newsletter you can sign up to on our website along with listening forward which is our new music USA newsletter and there's also an events newsletter but it's only for New York because it's linked again to a kind of New York program but any of those are up for grabs and I hope, by the way, that, you know, what another thing we can do in the future, and we got this feedback when we've been on the road, is potentially, you know, help some of these groups in other cities to, you know, have a place where they can post information about what they're up to so that we have a, a more full picture of what's happening around the States. Yeah, that would be great. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for doing this, Vanessa. No, thank you for interviewing me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening. As always, if you want to find out more about adjective new music or lexical tones, please go to our website, www.adjectivenewmusic.com.